Kids First podcast, where we talk to educators, school leaders, <laughs> policymakers, and charter school acolytes about their stories. We always start with why here, because it's not just about a job, occupation, or field. It's about why we do what we do for kids. I'm your host, Chris Neely. As the superintendent of the South Carolina Public Charter School District and the father of three amazing kids, I have seen time and time again the pain that a lack of access and choice in education can cause. But I have also seen the beauty and joy that educational autonomy can create. So thanks for listening and for coming along with us here at the district as we learn more about putting kids first. Today we have a very special guest. We have Secretary Betsy DeVos, who was the former 11th U.S. Secretary of Education in the United States. Betsy's a charter school pioneer. She's an advocate for educational freedom. And in my book, she's the original Kids First Champion. We first met during the previous administration. And it was at a Kids First Town Hall meeting that she co-hosted at the White House, where we first talked about opening up schools during COVID so that all kids could reach their full potential and not see the kind of learning losses that we were beginning to see across the United States. And when I became superintendent at the South Carolina Public Charter School District three years ago, I adopted Kids First as our motto here in South Carolina. But I have to give Secretary DeVos all the credit because she was the one that started that first town hall. Secretary DeVos, welcome to the Kids First podcast. Thanks so much, Chris. It's great to be with you. Well, it's it's so wonderful to be with you. I've been a big fan of yours for actually several decades, going back to my my work um, in the Republican Party in the early 90s, working for former Governor Carol Campbell, who I know you knew, and appreciate just so much what you and your husband and family have done to create educational opportunities for kids all across the United States. And of course, I just truly admired your work as secretary, but but there's so much more that you're doing. You've got a, a new book out, Hostages No More. It's a great book that really explains what you talk about when you talk about educational freedom and choice and empowering parents. What are you up to now? You left the administration a few years ago. You're touring the country. What are you doing now? Tell us a little bit about your educational freedom journey and your book. Sure. Well, I, Chris, first of all, it's great to be with you. Thanks for the opportunity. And uh, thanks for the organization that you had, Kids First and Putting Kids First. That is right in sync with the work that I've been doing for three and a half decades now. I went to Washington after having spent about 30 years at that time advocating for policy change at the state level, policies that would empower families to make those choices for their kids, to take educational freedom and, uh, and put it to work for their own children. And it's really been exciting this last couple of years to see the momentum that has built around education freedom policies in states across the country. So I'm continuing to do the same advocacy work uh, with, uh, with the additional experience of having been in Washington and having seen up close and personal how, uh, how the system has continued to fail so many millions of kids and all of that, to a large extent, is uh, is headquartered right there in Washington, D.C., um, at the Department of Education, which is staffed by so many people who have an agenda contrary to kids' best interest. I remember reading a quote from you maybe a year or two ago. You, you were asked about you know some of the initiatives that you wanted to push, but the system itself just kept pushing back. But 
What we've seen in America, though, is that if parents have information, if they have knowledge about choices and opportunities for their kids, when they're empowered, we can really overcome a lot of those systems. Isn't that true? Absolutely. Uh, where we've seen the most education freedom for the longest periods of time, and I often reference Florida because uh, Governor Jeb Bush initially led that charge, and everyone uh, who's been governor and the legislators legislatures since then have continued to expand to where now, uh, just recently, they put in place a universal program in Florida that every child will be able to access. But when you see the, uh, the implementation of more and more choices, you see more and more creativity around the approaches to meeting individual kids' needs and more and more specializing around that. And, uh, and, and the good news is that all schools get better as a result. When we have competition, when we have something to benchmark ourselves against, we are by nature going to improve. And that has proven to be a, a wonderful reality for every kid in the state of Florida and elsewhere where they're having that kind of experience. You know, I'm so glad you brought that up because one of the purposes in the South Carolina Charter Act is for charter schools to be an example, not only on the innovative side, but how through best practices we can be better and then they can replicate this. Recently, I was at one of our charter schools in Sumter, South Carolina, Shaw Air Force Base, a key strategic asset for the United States is located there. But Liberty Steam Charter School, a new charter school that's really growing there for Title I children who didn't have good choices in that community. The local school district didn't offer any form of choice. Recently, I was there for their lottery and I was watching the power that occurs in, in that room at, in that cafeteria that night when all these parents were finding out that their kid was going to get a seat in the school. Literally the same week, the local school district voted to open up choice within their school district. That was the power of what was going on at Liberty and how that benefits everybody. It's a win-win. Yeah, it is a win-win. And I, I'm glad you mentioned Sumter because uh, my, my parents actually lived in Sumter for over a year while my dad was in the service and my mom taught first grade there. So uh, that and that was a long time ago, but it's so great to hear about that kind of dynamic and that kind of opportunity developing in communities like Sumter and all across South Carolina. Yeah, you know, I get criticized a lot and a lot of folks in traditional schools, they're like, oh, well, you're just you're trying to put us out of business. You're trying to take our money. And I'm like, no, we're just about making it better for kids, all kids. We're not at war with our traditional public school friends. We want to help them be better. And by the way, I've also learned some things that we've got going on on the innovation side with some of our traditional schools that we've adopted in charter schools. I mean, that's really what we should all be about is being kind of this incubator together and putting kids first. Exactly. If you stay focused on doing the right thing for students, for kids and their needs, everyone is going to do better and everything is going to be better for them. And, uh, you know, you mentioned specializing in different areas. My husband started a charter school a dozen years ago here in Michigan, a high school. It's focused on aviation and it's a convening idea for kids to come together, study a, a subject area that has lots of career opportunities, but many of them will never even choose to go into aviation. But it's an idea that excites them and engages them in ways that a more traditional setting might not. And it's not the, you know, the right thing for every child, 
but we need a lot more of those kinds of options and opportunities. And the dynamic for K-12 education will fundamentally change in favor of kids. I love the idea of having an aviation focus. We've got a charter school in the upstate up in Greenville, Greenville Tech Charter High School, located on one of our technical college campuses. They too have an aviation program. Those kids are going in and getting jobs at Lockheed Martin and some of these other you know, defense contractors working, uh, whether it's in, in mechanics or technology or whatever. Um, we also have a big automotive industry here. You and I actually talked about this when you were in Columbia a few months ago. I asked you a question at the governor's mansion with Governor Henry McMaster about, have you seen any examples, because you're from Michigan, have you seen any examples of like automotive tech charter schools across the country? And with us now having all these automotive jobs and the scout announcement here in Columbia recently, what kind of innovations like that are you seeing in addition to like the aviation program your husband started? Well, um, Unfortunately, Michigan lags behind many other states in innovating in education and education freedom. Uh, we're trying hard to change that because kids here need it as much as any other place. But the, the reality is that with the high tech jobs that are continue to be um, more and more prevalent and available, uh, those are great opportunities for uh, um, employers and local communities to get together around, uh, you know, curriculums and experience, experiential learning and apprenticeships that are going to get these kids ready for careers that, you know, the sky's the limit with. I love the fact you brought up the apprenticeships. There was an article I read in the Washington Examiner just the other day about Mike Rowe and the Mike Rowe Foundation and what they're doing in terms of trying to influence guidance counselors around the country to tell young people, look, college is not the only way to achieve the American dream. There's all kinds of career and technology and military occupations that kids can go into right out of high school with the high school diploma if they get the credentials and the, and the have the apprenticeship opportunities. We also saw in the Wall Street Journal where white collar jobs are on the decline, blue collar jobs are on the on the rise. How important is that and what role could schools of choice play in the new economy in America? Well, it's really important and there's great opportunities, but it is very true that the traditional guidance approach in most high schools has been simply trying to, you know, help a child decide where the child's going to college, not if the student is. And um, I know from more than one roundtable conversation I had while in Washington that this concept of introducing students to a wide range of career options and pathways earlier on was, was kind of new news to many of them. So it's exciting to hear about private sector initiatives like Mike Rose that are encouraging uh, count guidance counselors to think more, you know, to, to prepare themselves and to be prepared to give the kind of exposure to and, uh, and, and open the doors to all of these different pathways that are possible. And I frankly think we should be doing it and, 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 you know, introducing kids to a lot of these different options as early as early middle school you know, exposing them to the great kinds of uh, career paths they might have or helping them figure out what things they're particularly interested in. So many kids I I've heard 
and learned about have gone on to a year or two of college and then decide, no, I really, really want to do something where I'm working with my hands. Right. And uh, I think about a, a visit I had while secretary to Valencia College in Florida, um, where I met a young woman who had been a court reporter for 10 or 12 years and decided, no, this is really not my thing. She went back to uh, a short-term certification program and now does wiring harnesses in uh, the wings of aircraft and is excited every day to go to work. Yeah. We also have a Kids First radio show every week here in South Carolina. And we had a student on the other day who just got accepted into a big automotive technician program here in South Carolina. And he did it with a high school diploma. He already has a job right out of high school, a good job. And he's got a great trajectory ahead of him in terms of his career. And the other day, it just struck me. He was like, I love working with my hands. And you were talking about that. He's like, I like be working with my hands. I feel like every day when I leave work, I've done something. Yeah. And I mean, how amazing is that? But we need more kids to know that those are opportunities for them, too. You don't have to keep going to college. And by the way, incur all this debt that they might not ever pay off. Exactly. Exactly. That all sorts of career options and opportunities are valuable and valued. And uh, and we need to help kids get exposure to those much earlier on and have a chance to test them out. You know, take a little test ride. Um, getting kids into internships and apprenticeship opportunities very early so they can either rule out something they think they might be interested in or confirm that that's something they really want to pursue. That's right. And so you've got a you've got a new book that's been out for a while now, Hostages No More. Great book. I, I just love your personal story, first of all. And I love when you talk about your father and your family. Your family means so much to you. And I know that and it always has been. And And that's been a big part. This has been a family affair, really, when it comes to you all and your advocacy for for all kids. But in the book, you argue that the current system in America is failing many of our children. And and when we talk about that, I also think about it's kind of a really national security threat to our country because we keep falling behind other countries who are a threat to the United States. Talk a little bit about the book and what you examined in terms of the data to demonstrate that the current system really is failing our kids. Sure. Well, uh, start with the title, which is admittedly rather provocative, but it is a direct reference to a quote made by Horace Mann, who's commonly known as the father of our K-12 system, brought to us in the 1850s, so well over 175 years old now, doing essentially the same thing. But he said at the time that educators are entitled to look upon parents as having given hostages to our cause. And the COVID years exposed to families across our country just how many ways their children have been held hostage. Hostage to a system that is more focused on adults and adult issues and less focused on doing what's right for individual kids. And so the book is really a playbook for parents and policymakers about uh, where we've been, where we've come from, and uh, the, you know, the, the, the reams of data that show how far we're falling behind. Um, We don't score in the top 10 
in, in, in comparison to any of our competitors around the world. And um, when you look at our nation's report card information, the, the scores for our kids in recent years have taken a nosedive. And this in spite of spending well over a trillion dollars at the federal level alone with the express goal of closing achievement gaps since the founding of the Department of Education. So the, the, uh, the notion that we would continue to do the same thing, just spending more money, that that's going to solve a problem is completely disabused by all of the data. And, um, and we talk about ways we need to move into an education freedom environment, which simply means that parents, uh, that the, the money for a student follows the student and families have the decision about where and how and when their child is going to learn. And it's a, it's a simple concept, but it's a, a profound one in that it will totally change when fully implemented, will totally change the dynamic for every child in their K-12 learning years. We call this a playbook for parents. I really believe it also has been a playbook for policy here in South Carolina. This past year, our General Assembly and our Governor, Henry McMaster, passed the, the, the first ever really school reform funding formula that includes charter schools along with all other schools now. So now we're all in the same pot. The money yeah. follows the child. This year, the General Assembly passed our first ESA bill. So now children will have other options to go to private schools. And, and look, I'm full choice. Like if you want to homeschool, private school, parochial, public, traditional, charter, whatever, like I'm for the whole thing. I just want parents to have choices. But you were ahead of the curve on all this. I mean, you didn't just start talking about this in your book, Hostages No More. I mean, Betsy, you've been talking about this for for three decades or more. Talk a little bit, because when I think about that, when I think about Milton Friedman in the 1950s, where he really was the first to talk about vouchers. And then in the, the 1970s, 80s, where this concept of a charter for teachers to create kind of this little innovative autonomous unit within a school. Talk about like what you've seen, because you've been a player in this now for several decades. Talk about like just what it means to like watch policy ideas incubate and then become realization today? Well, it's uh, like I said, it's been a long road to get to where we are today and the momentum that is underway currently. Um, for years, I and many others have been working state by state, trying to help, help uh, policymakers see the wisdom of empowering parents. Most of our efforts early on were targeted to families with low incomes because they're the one they're the ones with the least number and the least amount of options and so much of the work early on was was for and on behalf of those students but parents had a front row to their kids education through covid and that i believe was the turning point because they saw front you know front and center whether their kids were getting a good education or not how well their system did at delivering uh, distance learning, how well they worked to try to get kids back in the classroom. And, and importantly, they also saw curriculums being presented to their children that were antithetical to their family's values. And so for any number of those reasons or all of them, 
uh, families have have decided, you know, we're not happy with or satisfied with the way things have been. We want to change. We want to be able to make these decisions and let us decide what's best for our children, not a system that doesn't care about our kids the way we do. And so the momentum that has unleashed has been absolutely terrific for kids and for families and their futures because uh, the policies being enacted now in many states across the country, starting frankly with West Virginia, that was the, the first forerunner in a, a universal education savings account, and then followed closely behind by Arizona, and then in succession, Iowa and Nevada and Arkansas and Florida and now South Carolina and uh, you know Nebraska and Oklahoma have just passed major education freedom bills. Uh, Indiana and Ohio are set to dramatically expand their education freedom options. So the, the momentum around this is... Um, unstoppable, frankly, and um, and that's to that's going to be to kids and families' benefit. You know, COVID really was a disruptive, innovative moment for education in America. And look, there was a lot of bad that came out of it, and obviously, uh, that was a that was a tough time for our country to really kind of push through it. But I'm so thankful that we had a governor that supported our schools in South Carolina staying open. Our district, our charter schools stayed open. Our report cards that came out last fall, so it was data from the COVID period. Because we stayed open in ELA and math, our students in the South Carolina Public Charter School District outpaced the entire state in all those metrics. In fact, all of our subgroups, students of color, pupils in poverty, students with disabilities, they all outpaced. But it shows the difference when when you have leaders that stand up like you and Governor McMaster and and our new state superintendent Weaver, when you stand up for parents and you give them options and you keep the doors open yeah. and you support your teachers, by the way, that's right, uh, which which we do in our district. You know, it makes the difference for parents and the kids that we serve. Yeah. Um, and the data is there. And of course, look at the data in Mississippi now. What's going on there? You and I were talking beforehand about the science of reading, and there's just so much innovation going on, but it all started with COVID. That's right. That's right. It did, it really did lay bare the failings of a, a system that many of us have known were there for many, many years, uh, decades, uh, really. And um, I think it, 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 has, it has unleashed a, uh, a move toward change and toward empowering families that is is going to be um, game changing for kids across the country, and I'm uh, I, I couldn't be more energized about and, and passionate about the work that we've done and continue to do to try to help um, do you know do this on kids' behalf. Another thing you talk about in your book is the important role that technology can play in in education in America, and because we have virtual schools that are charter schools in South Carolina. They knew how to do virtual school. You know, my son was in the traditional high school down the street and they might have called that virtual learning, uh, but there wasn't a whole lot going on there. And we quickly removed him from that school and he went to our local, local Catholic school. But, you know, our virtual schools that are charter schools, because they, they know how to do it the right way and keep get kids engaged, they saw great progress in that. We also saw many of our other charter schools that are brick and mortar implement hybrid versions to offer kids other offerings, or maybe they don't offer a course in 
in person that another charter school offers online, they're able to expand the, the, the opportunities for our kids through technology to do this. Uh, we've got AI now. And I want you to speak to this because we had some traditional districts in South Carolina when ChatGBT came out really in full force earlier this year that banned it in their districts. And our charter schools said, no, 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 no. We need to be embracing this new form of technology. Let's don't be scared of it. Yes, we can put boundaries on it. Speak to the important role that you speak of in the book about technology and how that can actually help our kids. No, absolutely. The the um, role of technology, I think we've only begun to scratch the surface of on behalf of kids and their learning. And, you know, distance learning or uh, a virtual learning is not the right answer for every child, but it is working for many students. And right. they, those students need to have those options. We also think about, uh, you know, kids in rural areas where they're attending a school that they might love to be at and for the most part is doing a good job to prepare them, but perhaps they can't offer two or three courses that this student really, really would love to take for their future and their plans. Well, you could do that right there in that school virtually, probably with the finest instructor could be on the other side of the world, but you could do it right there and uh, have a course choice option uh, available. So there, there's um, the, the, those who are resistant to embracing technology in a way that is um, going to be additive and bring value to students are doing so at their own peril in an education freedom environment because there, more and more uh, families are going to find the right fit and the right solution that may include a lot of technology that, uh, you know, if, if, you're, if you're refusing to do just based on um, being fearful of it is not a good answer. Uh, you're exactly right. Let's also talk about this, this concept of empowerment. Um, and, and of course, we saw that with parents during COVID. I've talked to you before about my personal story with my youngest son, Marsh, with Down syndrome and how during COVID, you know, we moved to a particular uh, zip code here in Columbia so that he could go to a particular traditional school down the street, a good school. Mm -hmm. But the school district would not open up during COVID. They would not even evaluate my son in person. They were making judgments based off of a, a, a piece of paper. My wife and I, we said, no, we're not having any of that. He's not going to be self-contained. We know he can learn. We know that he has opportunities for, for, for growth. So we sent him down the street to a church school. That worked for about a year and a half. But, you know, he does have needs. And they finally came to a conclusion they couldn't support him in the way that he needed. So then we enrolled him in one of the local charter schools in downtown Columbia. And Marsh is now thriving. But it's because Janie and I were empowered. Uh, one, we had the ability, because we had the financial means, to buy a house in the right zip code. That shouldn't have to be the case, um, because there's a lot of families that, that you've spoken about that just don't have the option to move in the right zip code. What can we do to really kind of deconstruct, decentralize this whole notion that we've got to have these attendant zones and, and school zip codes, because that cuts out a lot of kids. Yeah, absolutely. Well, education freedom policies are the the answer, right? If you if the the, the dollars for your your student 
are not uh, designated for a, a zoned school or building, um, but instead are, are yours to decide that follow the child, um, that creates a whole different dynamic. And I think about, you know, the cities that have basically hollowed out with young families when families of means got to an age with, with their children where they, ha they decided they have to go move out to a suburb somewhere to go to a good school. All of that changes when you introduce a full on true education freedom policy that empowers families to make those choices. They're going to, you know, they're going to uh, find the options that are going to be best. Some of them might be right down the street or they might help create some new options. And I think about the teachers also, what a huge opportunity this is for teachers to have the freedom to find their fit educationally as well. I think about the many teachers who have left the profession because they've become so frustrated with, uh, you know, with this top-down union control, heavy-handedness that has uh, that starts right at the top, um, you know, in Washington and has filtered down in every state. Um, and, and where many of them have been frustrated and discouraged because they're not able to develop and, and become all they can become professionally. Education freedom changes that for every good teacher also. You know, I had, I'm so glad you brought up the teacher aspect. So I had a local university ask me, they said, well, what kind of attrition are you seeing with your teachers in your charter schools? And I said, well, actually, we're not having attrition. I said, but we do need more teachers, but it's because we're having so much growth. <laughs> You know, we have teachers, so most of our charter schools, they can't offer state retirement. Uh, they do offer very competitive market-based retirement plans. We also don't participate in the state salary schedule. Our mm -hmm. schools actually can make decisions about salaries and pay at the local school level because they have the autonomy to do that. And they can pay more than the state schedule and they can pay them based on merit and performance. And it works. What does it mean for teachers to have that kind of empowerment, but also just to have the autonomy in the classroom to do their magic, to do the thing that they, they wanted to do, but without all the weight and the regulation? Yeah. No, I think it's a huge opportunity for teachers to um, really grow and thrive themselves. And for those who are entrepreneurial and have an idea about uh, a, a special kind of a school, a convening idea, um, it gives them the opportunity to band together with some others and create new options for families. Um, it's a win-win for everyone, um, with the exception of the union bosses who continue to who who've continued to try to, uh, you know, wield their hammers to control everyone. So I've got one last question, and it's hard to believe our time is already up. It goes by so quickly. So you're at an education forum here in South Carolina. You're visiting. You're up in front of a bunch of skeptics who really have a lot of concerns about this whole notion of educational freedom, choice, charter schools, vouchers, and so forth. And you're asked the question, you know, why educational freedom? What's your answer? The answer is that with freedom and competition, what we're focused on, everything gets better. And um, we have seen for decades now that for a top-down government-run basically a monopoly system for most kids, um, it has failed too many of those kids. And holding them hostage to that system is the wrong thing for them personally. 
It's also the wrong thing for our country because if we do not have uh, an environment that is preparing the next generation to grow up and take on leadership roles, ready, educated, and prepared, knowledgeable, uh, we are going to suffer ourselves economically. And um, and you mentioned earlier, this is you know this is really a a foreign a, a defense issue. Um, we will be weakened from within. And we've seen a lot of that in the last several decades. Now's the time to turn that court or turn that, uh, you know, turn that around and change uh, our future for every child. Secretary DeVos, I love that. I love love what you're, you've been doing in our country to advocate for parents and children. You were an educational freedom pioneer uh, long before we ever really talked about educational freedom. And, and like I said at the very beginning, uh, you really are the original Kids First Charter champion, and we appreciate that about you. Secretary DeVos, always good to be with you. Please let us know when you're back in South Carolina. You've always got a home with us. Well, thank you so much, Chris. It's been great to be with you, and congratulations on the great progress in South Carolina. And uh, we, I look forward to the next time I can visit. Well, thank you very much, and I do look forward to that visit. Friends, that's it for the Kids First podcast. What a great show. Secretary DeVos, she really speaks to, to what this is all about in giving, empowering parents so that their children can have every opportunity to reach their full potential. And also, don't forget to check out her new book, Hostages No More, the fight for educational freedom and the future of the American child. Thank you, Secretary DeVos. Take care. We'll see you soon. Thanks. Thanks.